Hi everyone, and welcome back to Crime and Crime Again. Season 2 just wrapped up, and I am prepping for Season 3, but today I do have a special episode for you. I was lucky enough to work with Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime, and we covered and discussed the case of Kara Kopetsky, whose case I covered back in September of 2020. I hope you enjoy! Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. Today, I have Chelsea from Crime and Crime Again with me. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for joining me. So, Chelsea, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your podcast and what got you into podcasting? Yeah, of course. So my podcast is called Crime and Crime Again. Um, I cover lesser known cases is what I strive for, and I put a really huge emphasis on the cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, because it's not talked about, it's not covered in the media, it's, it's severely underreported. So I kind of wanted to make that my mission to bring light to those stories. I think that's such a great thing. I mean, being a Canadian, you know, coming from Canada, and we have such a problem with missing and murdered indigenous women. And you know, you've got cases like the Highway of Tears, Amber Tucaro is a really famous you know, case of a missing and murdered Indigenous woman because of the the recorded call that happened because her brother was in prison. So you've got the killer's voice on this call, but we still haven't been able to catch this person. And it's just so frustrating. Yeah, I actually did an episode on Amber Tuckero. Um, I'll be re-recording that soon with much better audio, but that was that was kind of one of my first MMIW cases. And it really, really kind of pushed me like I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing the right thing here. Like I'm, I really want to keep doing this. And I myself am native. Um, My family is of the Passamaquoddy nation in Maine. So that also kind of pushes me to keep talking about it and keep bringing light to all of this. Yeah, I think it's a really really great thing that's really unique to, you know, you know, your podcast is really good. Another one that does this really well is Crime Lines with Charlie. She does a really good job of, you know, bringing light to these really underreported cases that I think are so important because this whole idea of this ideal victim, which is, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, doesn't do drugs, has this, you know, maybe a college student, this idea. The fact is a lot of these women, have really unfortunate personal circumstances due to no fault of their own. They're often born into situations that are really, really impossible and they're doing the very best that they can. And it's heartbreaking when law enforcement in some cases doesn't take these cases as seriously because let's just say one of the women does drugs or there's something like that in her history or there's sex work, something like that. And I think the fact that we As podcasters, when we draw more attention to that and and YouTubers as well, I think it kind of brings it into the public consciousness and draws attention to a really, really important issue. Yeah, absolutely. Like people, just because someone struggles with addiction or, or is a sex worker, like their stories get so drowned out because the media and authorities themselves kind of see them as less than not worthy of covering when it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Like these people 
they deserve to be found. They deserve justice. Their family, someone loves them. Someone misses them. Someone wants answers for them. And no matter what struggles they've had, their story deserves to be told. It does. And that's one of the things I've got such a hard time understanding is yes, like, uh, you know, in certain cases, law enforcement may not approve of people's lifestyles, whether it's drugs, sex work, what have you. But at the end of the day, when you get justice for that person, you're really getting justice for those living family members, right? Those people that are left behind and they're left to grapple with such a tragedy. And when there is no resolution, it remains open-ended and there is no justice. So how do these families ever find closure? And so I think it's so important that we see past this whole idea of this less dead, which is a phrase that I really hate, but it's something that is often applied to missing and murdered Indigenous women because they are not seen as an ideal victim. So I think what you're doing is a really great thing. And obviously, you know, because of your background and your heritage, you've got a unique perspective and that you can probably likely really relate to a lot of these women and feel a real connection with them. Definitely. I've had my own kind of identity struggles with it because I just because of my family's decision to move away from the reservation long, long ago, long before I was even born, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up on the reservation. I didn't have to grow up with a lot of these struggles that so many indigenous people face today. So, and I absolutely a hundred percent recognize I am white passing. I absolutely benefit from white privilege. I haven't experienced the same things but I still do want to tell these stories and I still do feel that kind of connection. Yeah, I think it's one of those things I've seen firsthand and that I had a lot of Indigenous friends when I was growing up because I lived in a city where there was a reservation really, really close. So in being friends with these people, like I saw a lot of their family situations and a lot of the struggles that they faced. And the thing is, it's not that... It's not that like these people are less than, it's that they have sometimes the most, this legacy of pain almost because, you know, we in Canada have this unfortunate history of residential schools. And so you've got people where a culture has been literally stripped away from them. And then you add on top of it, these coping mechanisms where people will turn to drugs and alcohol to try to reclaim a part of themselves that maybe has been lost forever. And then you get this cycle of addiction and abuse. And so a lot of these issues that Indigenous people in Canada face, a lot of them, you know, the way that our government has treated them is partially responsible. And it's definitely a major contributing factor. So to forget about these people and their struggles and to, you know, paint them as the less dead or not worthy of justice is just such an unfair concept, in my opinion. A hundred percent. It's, it's so, it's honestly disgusting to see how Indigenous people are represented in media, are I don't even know. It like leaves me kind of speechless. Like I don't know how to comprehend. I don't know how to, how to fathom like this abuse and this, this genocide and this racism that has just persisted for centuries. And it's, it just continues to perpetuate itself and it continues to rear its ugly head. Like it's, (laughs) I don't even I don't really know how to like articulate my, my really intense feelings about it. Well, I think the fact that you choose to cover the cases that you cover speaks 
you know, very directly to how painful a situation and how it is difficult to articulate those situations. And so you might express yourself through those cases you choose to cover, bringing attention to those stories that deserve more attention. So I think like all of you out there should definitely go and listen to Crime and Crime Again, because these are stories that I think are so, so important. And Chelsea really shines a light on cases you've never heard of, probably for one. There's quite a few that she's covered that maybe I hadn't even heard of. So I definitely think you should go and check out her podcast. Thank you so much. Um, I am finishing up season two right now. I did a season covering historical crimes just to give myself a bit of that mental health break from things that are a bit closer to home. But soon I am starting season three and that is going to be full of many more cases of Indigenous women and men who deserve answers and deserve justice. All right. So I need to know kind of what is it that kind of first drew you to true crime? Was there one case that sticks out to you from childhood or your teenage years? My earliest memories of anything true crime are probably, firstly, Natalie Holloway. My Nana, my Nana, she's, bless her heart, I love her so much. She follows all those, all the media, all the news. Um, she talked a lot, she followed the Natalie Holloway case very closely. And I remember her talking about it all the time when I was a kid. And also, I guess when I got older, just a little bit older, Casey Anthony definitely kind of caught my attention. I remember watching her trial, even though I didn't really know what was going on, but my family for sure was vocal about their feelings. Um, that's probably my earliest memories of anything real life true crime, but what really drew me to it, I think, would be my interest has always been in, you know, shows like Criminal Minds and Bones and SVU. I've always watched those, always loved the, the storytelling, the mystery solving. And I think it kind of evolved into, I want to learn about this in real life. I want to learn what's going on in the world around me. Yeah. I think that's a really great answer. Those are some of my favorite shows too. So I, everybody loves SVU. I've got a bit of a hard time watching it. I don't know. I think once to do with sexual assault, like a regular Law and Order, I, I definitely could watch. But SVU, I had a bit of a harder time with it. it. It was one of those ones that maybe like stuck with me a little bit more. And maybe because it was triggering because, you know, when I was a teenager, I'd experienced a sexual assault. So for me, it's a little triggering. But when it comes to Bones and Criminal Minds, those have got to be like top 10 favorite shows. Bones has got to be in my top three. I absolutely love that show. Oh my God, Bones is my number one all-time favorite show. I have literally watched all 12 seasons like six times over now. Yeah, I think I need to like start re-watching Bones and just doing a complete rewatch of all the seasons. I've seen every single season, every single episode, but I think it's time I do a rewatch because it's such a good show. Dr. Temperance Brennan has got to be one of the best characters to ever be on TV. Yeah, I think I've actually, I've watched it so many times, I may have adopted some of her like <laughs> character traits, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but my husband so often I'll say something or I'll do something and he'll be like, you, you're adopting, you look, you're acting like Brennan right now. Stop <laughs> watching the show. You got to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> she's like adorably awkward, right? You know, it's, she's like super awkward, but it's really endearing. Mm -hmm. The way she says, I don't know what that means to like the most pop culture stuff. I, I laugh my ass off every time. 
Yeah, she's so funny. Okay, so if you could pick one case where the answers just become clear and then there's justice and resolution for the family, which case would it be? That's definitely a tough one, but I think if I had to pick right now, I would say the case of Kaysera Stops Pretty Places. She was an 18-year-old girl from Hardin, Montana of the Crow and Northern Cheyenne Nations who went missing on August 24th, 2019, and was found five days later on August 29th. There have been so many unethical, disrespectful behaviors and practices on the part of investigating authorities since she was found. Um, they still have not determined a cause of death or a manner of death. They made reckless assumptions about her and what her cause of death would be even before any autopsy or toxicology was done. Even after that reporting came back and they were wrong, they still never apologized, nothing. It's one of the most infuriating and heart-wrenching cases I've ever read about. And her family have been absolute champions in keeping her story alive and trying to be a voice and trying to get her justice. And if I could pick right now, I would absolutely get answers and get justice for them. Yeah, I'm definitely familiar with that story. And it's one of those ones that's super frustrating because I just don't feel like it's another one of those cases where you've got a lot of stereotyping, you've got a lot of othering, you've got, you know that they're thinking in their heads, they're like, oh, just another junkie sex worker, but they're going to use probably way worse terminology than that. And they're going to assume, oh, she's probably doing drugs and this and that, and that the victim should assume some part of responsibility in her death. It's almost like that's put on the shoulders of certain victims, especially missing and murdered Indigenous women, that they should assume some kind of element of responsibility. Like, you put yourself in that situation, sweetheart. Mm-hmm. They, they absolutely assigned a stereotype to her and assumed so many things about her that were not true, even though they never talked to the family once. They, to this day, they have not approached the family or interviewed the family to get any information about <laughs> Kaysera. And they, they have absolutely just made a stereotype out of her. It wasn't even true. Like the toxicology came back and there were no drugs in her system at all. And I mean, she had been hanging out with friends that night, so they probably had a little bit of alcohol. There were very, very low levels of alcohol in her system, but the way she was found and just her, the circumstances surrounding it, her death was by no fault of her own. Something happened to her that night. Someone knows and someone's not talking. That boggles my freaking mind. The fact that she's murdered and they have never spoken to the family. Like, where are they getting their information? If you're trying to, you know, solve a murder, figure out what happened, you know, you want to understand what are, what are these factors that could have put her in this position? Did she have any contentious relationships with people? You want to go to the family. The fact that they still haven't talked to them, that boggles my mind. Yeah. The family has had to make all of the effort to talk to like the, I guess the county attorney and the, every other investigating authority, they've made all the effort to speak to them. They've scheduled the meetings. The authorities have never like come to their door and talk to them about the case. They've had to go out on a limb and stick their neck out just to get any information and to stay up to date about her case. That's gotta be so frustrating. Like my heart breaks for that family. You've got, you know, a dead 
child, sister, you know, auntie, whatever she was to all of these different people, friend. And you've got law enforcement that's acting like they effectively just don't care. And you're having to make all of the effort and bend over backwards when they're supposed to be the ones coming to you and saying, let me figure out what you know, so we can help you solve this. Not the other way around. It's not like, oh, you come and approach us because like we're doing you a favor. Like that's not how law enforcement is supposed to handle cases. They absolutely did not care. They still don't care about Casera. They incorrectly told the family they would have to wait 24 hours to report her missing. So even when the family finally did that, it was later found out that they never entered her into the missing persons database. That is one of, one of the most frustrating things. It's like the family thought that she was in there for the longest time, right? Mm-hmm. She was they- only missing for five days, but they were under the impression that she had been filed as missing by the authorities and that they were going to conduct searches, which they never did. It was a passing jogger who found her. They never searched for her. They never, uh, they were just so reckless and lazy and irresponsible about this entire investigation. It's like apathy and ambivalence, like permeates so many of these investigations when it comes to Indigenous women in particular. And like, I keep hitting on this point because it is an important point to emphasize that not all deaths, not all murders, and not all disappearances are treated the same. It's a real problem that the fact that law enforcement, problem in Canada, it's a problem in the US, that in a lot of cases, law enforcement does not take the cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women as seriously. And this is a broad generalization. There are plenty of officers who really, really do care. And this is like, you know, the cases that they are most passionate about. But we're just taking, speaking with broad strokes right now. It is a major, major problem. And I think a lot of it is lack of understanding because you can speak to this, Chelsea. I know in Canada, a reservation is like, you know, kind of sovereign land, right? And so if any crime is kind of committed, it's dealt with on the reservation. But I think with the exception of murder, is that the same in the U.S.? With the U, it's kind of... It's a little bit convoluted, honestly. Um, it's hard to find any real information about it. It's The jurisdiction's very weird. On many reservations here in America, it's like they can't, they can't arrest people who are not members of the tribe for minor crimes. Some can't even arrest or charge non-members with serious crimes. Um, it, takes, it takes so much effort to get more like higher up jurisdictions to take a case, to take control of a case, like the FBI, for example. It's always poorly handled and tribal tribal jurisdictions are very uh, convoluted thing. And it kind of really negatively affects every case that takes place on a reservation. It's so unfortunate, right? Because not all reservations are created equal in their ability to be able to handle kind of their own criminal cases, right? It's going to vary wildly from reservation to reservation, like what type of, you know, reservation kind of police they have set up, what kind of like maybe tribunal system is that typically what they have for minor crimes on a reservation? Is it kind of like... I'm honestly, it's hard to find answers on this. Like the jurisdiction's so weirdly organized that... I guess it has to be like a a very serious a very serious crime for like tribal police to kind of defer to other jurisdictions. But in Kaysera's case, I believe she was found just under five miles off of the reservation, so or something along those lines. So it makes it even harder. 
Yeah, then it gets really confusing because then you've got everybody who's kind of involved, but the police are clearly not taking it as seriously. But I always wonder with murders, how it's going to cause like jurisdictional issues, because if somebody is murdered on a reservation, it, and like you said, it's kind of vague and convoluted because it probably does vary per state and per reservation. It's probably very, very different everywhere. It's not like a fe one federal kind of mandate that applies to every single reservation. So it's probably one of those questions that's really difficult to answer, but it's super it frustrating. Yeah. I wish I had more information on it, but it's so hard. Like in my episode about Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, I did cover the jurisdiction a little bit, but even then it was so hard to find any real clear answers on when does a state police force take over? When does a government organization take over a case? When when does someone start taking this more seriously? Yeah, and the answers aren't always clear, right? Like that's just the thing is like, you might find kind of a set of guidelines or whatever. It's sort of like, why do, when does the FBI become involved in a case? Well, there's plenty of factors that are at play and every single case is gonna be different. And one that you think that might check all the boxes for having the FBI involved, well, the local law enforcement might not want them there. And so therefore they're not there. It just is going to vary. So I get what you're saying. It's not something that you can give a really, really clear answer on. Yeah. And I know it's a slippery slope to kind of say police are not doing enough. Police aren't doing this, aren't doing that. But this is a case where it's definitely glaringly obvious that the authorities don't care. They don't care. And they've been irresponsible the entire way through this case They've been disrespectful to the family. There have been so many. I, I could make a whole, I could write a whole essay on just every bullet point that has gone wrong in this case on the part of authorities. So it's definitely a slippery slope. But in this case, they are not doing enough. They are not investigating the way they should be. Chelsea is going to tell me the story of the disappearance of Kara Kopetsky. So take it away, Chelsea. Kara Elise Kopetsky was born on February 17, 1990, in Frankfurt, Germany, to her parents, Rhonda and Michael. She was the only child that the two had together, and eventually they did separate. At some point during Kara's childhood, Rhonda married Jim Beckford, and together they had a son, Kara's younger brother. Kara lived with her mother, her stepfather Jim, and her younger brother in Belton, Missouri, which is a small town that sits right at the border of Missouri and Kansas. In May of 2007, Kara was 17 years old and a junior in high school. Kara had an incredibly fiery personality. She was outgoing and she was bubbly and never afraid to speak her mind. According to her family, she was very much a tell it like it is type of girl who always marched to the beat of her own drum. So I find it really interesting that Kara was born in Germany. Do you know if she spoke German as well as English? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she moved away at a super young age. I'm not sure why. Um, her mother lived in Germany or why she was born in Germany. They didn't really touch on much of that in like the episode or any of the media coverage. So I'm not positive. And I find it really interesting. They described her as having this super fiery personality. Like I remember thinking of friends of mine when, you know, I was in like, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade that had that really kind of strong sense of self and that fire literally would be like Kara and just be telling people that's how it is. And I always admired that incredible amount of confidence and just incredible sense of self to have at the age of 17 that someone's just going to be quite happy to tell whoever it is that like that's the way it is and you're just gonna have to deal with it. Yeah, she was definitely strong-willed and strong-spirited and I think it's 
that's why everyone loved her so much. It seems, it seems every time someone talks about how fiery and outgoing and feisty she was, you can always tell they're saying this with admiration that they love this about her. Yeah. It sounds like she was just full of life and really spunky and that self-assuredness where somebody can just kind of be confident in their own skin. Like that's such a magnetic thing. It really draws people to individuals like that, right? Like there's somebody that can take up a lot of space in a room. And I mean that in like the best of ways because people will just gravitate towards them and like orbit around them because there's just, there's something almost like infectious about that type of energy where somebody is just so confident and people will hang on their every word. Kara also had a tendency to skip classes at school. So again, that that independent, that defiant, fiery nature she has. But again, that's very typical for her age. I myself am guilty of skipping classes in high school. Generally, she would go to a class, skip one that she didn't like, and return later for the rest of her classes. So she wasn't just like leaving altogether. No, I used to do that on occasion too, but unfortunately our principal and our teachers at my high school were pretty onto this. So the few times that I did it, I got a lot of sit downs with my dad. So eventually it was like, this just isn't worth it. I'm not having nearly enough fun in this like one or two hour period to justify these conversations with my dad. Mm -hmm. So now we can get into the actual day of her disappearance. On the morning of May 4th, 2007, Kara left for school around 7 a.m. as she usually did. Her mom offered her a ride, but Kara chose to walk instead because she wanted to smoke on the way. I remember being, you know, 16, 17. I used to smoke back then and I know, gross, but it was one of those rebellious habits that, you know, it was like, oh, I'm going to go out to the smoke pit and have a couple cigarettes. So it would have been something I would have done at that age too. And been like, no, thanks, mom. I don't need a ride. I just want to walk and have a cigarette. So I could definitely identify with what Kara's doing here and just being like, no, I'm good. Like I got this. I'll just walk, mom. It's all good. So that day, Kara had asked her mom if she could drop off a textbook that she'd forgotten to bring with her. She had also asked her if she could wash her work uniform as she was scheduled to work at her job at Popeye's Chicken after school that day at 4 p.m. Rhonda did in fact drop off the textbook, but she dropped it off at the school's office. So she didn't actually see Kara. She also washed her work uniform and laid it neatly on Kara's bed before heading off to work. Her stepfather, Jim, arrived home from work around 3 p.m., as per usual. Typically, when he came home, Kara was already home from school and getting ready for work. That day, she wasn't there. You know what really stands out to me here is the fact that Kara seems to have a really awesome mom. Like, you're missing a textbook, your mom just brings it to school for you, drops it off at the office, and not only that, but she's got her work uniform, like, neatly on her bed, just waiting for her. Like, that's so cute, you know? Her mom is super sweet. She has, she just seems like such a, just a loving, strong person after everything. And I just, I loved watching her in the disappeared episode because you can tell she loved her daughter so much. She was always fighting for her and just little things like that. It's, it just warms your heart. Do you know how long that Jim and Kara's mother were married for? Were they married for like a really long time and he was really close to Kara? I believe so. I believe Kara was pretty young when they got married. Like she kind of grew up with him as her father figure. She, I think she still had a relationship with her biological father, but her and Jim were definitely close. And she, as far as I could tell, saw him as, you know, her father, like not really a stepdad, but her father. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. I kind of got that feeling, I think, from the Disappeared episode. It was a long time ago that I watched it, but it seemed like Kara had a really good, really close family. And she had a lot of adults around her who, yeah, she might have had a rebellious streak, but it felt like she was very supported in a lot of ways by her family. Definitely. Her stepfather, it was heartbreaking watching the episode. Her stepfather at one point during his interview, he absolutely broke down in tears talking about her. And at this point, when this episode aired, it was years and years before any updates. So they were still completely in limbo. I don't know what that must feel like for the family. Like you've got, you know, this kind of open-ended thing. You've got no resolution. You you want so badly to have answers. And at the point when the Disappeared episode was aired, they really didn't have any answers. And like, we'll get further, when we get deeper into the story, we'll get into those updates that have happened since the Disappeared episode. But it's it was really, really sad watching the family. And it was really clear that Kara was somebody who was very, very loved. Oh, definitely. And it just gets, it kind of gets more heartbreaking as we go. So Jim thought that it was odd that Kara hadn't returned home yet. So he tried to call her, but she didn't answer and didn't return his call. Soon after he arrived home and had tried to call her, Rhonda also arrived home from work. They began to wonder if maybe Kara had gotten after school detention for texting in class, meaning her phone would have been taken away. Growing concerned, Jim drove to her school to see if she was there, but everyone had already gone home for the weekend. Ugh, like I can't imagine when you go and you're kind of like everything just is feeling a little bit off. Where's Kara? This is not like her. Or you go somewhere and you're looking for her and you kind of just expect to find her. You know what I mean? And then when you don't, I can just imagine that feeling in your gut. You know what I mean? When you know something bad has happened and you get that kind of sinking feeling in your gut. And oh, I can only imagine that her mom and her stepfather, Jim, like that they were just panicking at this point. Oh, for sure. Just arriving at the school thinking, oh, well, this has happened before. She's kind of gotten in a little bit of trouble for texting in class before. So she's probably just in detention. You know, she's she's just she's at school. She's fine. And then going there and nobody's at school. I think this was a Friday that this all was happening. So it was the weekend. Everyone was everyone was gone. The school was empty. So there wasn't even anyone there that he could check with to see if maybe they knew where she had gone or where she might be. That's so awful. So you go, you're hoping like maybe she's in detention. Maybe she's being held after class. You know, she's got to be there because she's nowhere else. So did he then go to her work to check for her? He did. So after checking the school, Jim drove to the Popeye's chicken where she worked because he knew that she was scheduled to work that day after school. However, her manager said that she hadn't shown up and she hadn't called in either. Jim decided to stay and talk to the manager until about 4.20 p.m. in case Kara did come in late, but she never showed up. Okay, so now you've got multiple people who know that Kara will show up for work. Like, she likes having her own spending money. This isn't a girl that's like, you know, wants to be broke because she likes to do her own thing. And you've got the stepfather, Jim, who's checked the school. She's not there. Okay, so now he's thinking, all right, she's not there. She's definitely going to be at Popeye's. And he goes there, she hasn't shown up. So now you've got Jim worried, the manager's worried, because this obviously isn't like Kara. Exactly. Despite her defiant personality, she never missed work. She did like having her own money. She she smoked. She liked to buy cigarettes. She liked to hang out with her friends. She probably liked to buy her own food. She It was very out of character for her to just not show up to work at all, not even call in. 
Yeah. And being that kind of rebellious teenager around the same age, like you like to have your own money because my gosh, like you want to buy cigarettes and maybe wine coolers on the weekend or whatever it is that somebody's into. Like I'm only speaking for my own poor, poor personal choices around the same age. <laughs> when, you know, I used to like to drink like growers direct ciders or something gross. Like I don't even drink alcohol now, but I used to really like the men. And yeah, you want to have your own money for that. Like these sorts of things aren't cheap, especially a smoking habit, right? Like, I don't know what kind of cigarettes she smoked, but either way, I, what year did this happen again? This was 2007. Yeah. So cigarettes were pretty expensive still back in 2007. So you definitely would want to be having a part-time job or you'd be bumming money off your parents all the time. And that just didn't sound like the type of person that Kara was. Mm -hmm. Her parents actually tried to get her to stop smoking multiple times. So I don't know that it was likely that they bought her cigarettes, which would just emphasize more that she wanted her own money to buy them because they gave up trying to get her to stop after some point. They knew that she would just find a way to get it anyways. So again, she had things that she wanted. She had things she wanted to spend money on. So work was, school was something she wasn't super into. She skipped classes, you know, this and that. But work was definitely something she would not have missed because she was getting paid for it. So, okay, so where did Jim go next searching for Kara? So when Jim returned home from this search, he and Rhonda realized that Kara's work uniform was still folded neatly on her bed where her mom had left it earlier that day. There was also an entire carton of cigarettes left in her bedroom with only one pack missing. Her phone charger and her iPod were still also in her room. Yeah, that's a little worrisome because if somebody's planning on going for any length of time, I mean, I guess you could look at it two ways. You could go, well, maybe she just planned to pop out quickly, but at this point, She's really not any of the places you'd expect her to be. And to leave behind your iPod, like this has got to be before the time. This is going to be the time of separate iPods, right? Where you didn't have all of your music on your phone. You had to like, you know, download the songs onto the iPod. And that's how you listen to music, probably. I mean, I remember that happening, but it was just, it feels like so long ago. And mm -hmm. For her to leave that behind, it feels like someone who's a teenager, who's 17, they're going to want to have their iPod with them. And they're also going to want to have their cell phone charger with them because as we all know, like cell phones, batteries, they don't last forever. And if you're planning on going anywhere for any length of time, you want to have that ability to charge your cell phone. So the fact that not only are those items there, but it doesn't even look like Kara's been there because her work uniform is still folded where her mother left it for her. Rhonda and Jim then decided to drive to the skate park where they knew Kara often hung out with her friends, but no one there had seen her that day. After checking every potential location with no success, Rhonda decided to check Kara's phone bill, which was extensive at almost 100 pages long. Again, that would speak to she wants her phone charger with her because she uses her phone a lot. So it was odd that it was just left there and she was nowhere to be found. So Rhonda sits down and calls every single number listed on the phone bill to ask if anyone had seen Kara, but no one knew where she was. Yeah, that speaks to somebody who's using their phone constantly. Like you said, if she was planning on going anywhere and not returning home, she would have had that phone charger with her. And also a hundred pages long. Is this a phone bill that's like including like, I mean, trying to think back to 2007, is this a phone bill that's potentially including like text messages and all of these other sorts of things? Or is this just literal phone calls? Because this is back of the time when people still made more actual 
phone calls. Now it's a lot more texting and people use call apps, but I still think that people talk a lot less on the phone now than they did in 2007. Yeah, I'm not I'm not positive if it listed like actual text messages or anything like that, but at the very least it did list every single number she was in contact with every single number she called every number that called her so and her mom is such a such a fighter just sitting down knowing something is wrong sitting down and going through that list and determining yourself to calling every single number trying to find out where your daughter is that's that's got to be such a that's a heartbreaking thing to think about yeah Rhonda and Jim like honestly the amount that they were able to just get organized and do. And the fact that she got this phone bill and luckily that they had access to this phone bill so they could go through and call everybody. But I don't know how Rhonda managed to kind of maintain focus, kind of contain and manage her emotions in a way so that she was capable of doing that and not just breaking down because I can't even imagine in a situation like that. I I would think I'd be pacing back and forth, nervously unable to focus on doing one thing. But I guess she thought like, I want to find my baby and what is the easiest way that I'm going to be able to find kind of clues to as as to where she may possibly be while these people in her phone are going to be aligned to where Kara is somebody knows where Kara is and maybe somebody on this phone did something to Kara exactly and thinking about it I don't know that it listed any text messages or anything like that because as we'll find out later there was there was a name or someone Rhonda may have recognized conversation with if she could see her text messages that would have raised a red flag for her. So I think it was probably just phone numbers just because nothing seemed out of the ordinary in those records right off the bat. Yeah. And I think text messages would be a lot more telling. I can't remember back to 2007, like what was on phone bills, but I really don't think every single text message was, but if there was like your text messages are going to tell you a lot more about people's interactions and relationships with those people on their call log than just a simple call log will. You'll know that somebody has a very involved relationship or friendship with certain people based on the amount of time that they talk and how many times they talk per day, but you're not going to know kind of the con context or nature of that relationship without something to reference like text messages. Exactly. This also makes me wonder as we get into it later, this makes me wonder if there are particular people that she did actually speak to when she sat down and called all these numbers. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like she probably did speak to some of these people on the list, and I'm sure most of them were probably really concerned too. They're probably going, I have no idea where Kara is, and gosh, like I hope nothing happened to her, and I hope she's okay. I can imagine all of these people are her close friends. They're connected to her somehow, and I... I would imagine that if Rhonda was able to get a hold of them and she actually spoke to them, that I'm sure the majority of them would have expressed a great deal of concern and were most likely there to help in any way that they could, right? Exactly. There are definitely some suspicious characters that are coming to mind. I'm wondering, you know, did she did she ask them if they knew and <laughs> they told her no? kids at that age, right? You get some of them where they got kind of this idea or false belief that like, you know, don't want to be a rat and loyalty and this and that. Even when it comes down to the potential, their brains aren't fully developed yet till they're like 25. So 
their ability to make sound choices and to maybe do the right thing. We have to, you know, kind of suspend judgment a little bit. They may have believed what they were doing was the ethical thing and not, you know, telling on their one friend who may or may not have been involved. But the chances that any of these people actually knew what happened to her besides maybe the one person who may have done something to her. Well, we really just don't know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So all of their options had been exhausted. Kara was officially reported as a missing person around 5 p.m. on May 4th, 2007. The officer who responded to the report and came to the Beckfords' home didn't seem to take Kara's disappearance seriously. I mean, how often do we hear this in missing persons cases? The whole idea that she's probably just gone for a couple days and, you know, ran off to, with some friends or with a boyfriend and she'll be back. I think the fact that it's in 2007 is a little more unsettling if this was 1997 or 1987. I think okay, you've got a situation where, yeah, this is a girl who does skip school, she's independent, whatever, but we don't have a history of Kara missing work. And we also don't have a history of her just being nowhere. Any of these people that she's deeply connected to, none of them know where she is. This is a one-off situation. This hasn't happened before, right? It actually did happen one year prior. Kara had been grounded, but chose to leave the house anyways. Oh. She stayed out all night and didn't return until 7 a.m. So the police were contacted during this incident and it's likely that they assumed Kara had run away again and would return shortly. It's still unsettling, though, because even so, she was still a minor. So yeah. she legally was not allowed to just up and leave and disappear whenever she wanted. Legally, they should have prioritized her case. Oh, I 100% agree with you. I think anytime you've got a minor missing, especially when you've got a 17-year-old girl, this is somebody who is incredibly vulnerable and is much more likely to be a victim than, say, a 17-year-old boy. Statistically speaking, it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen, but she's in an incredibly vulnerable position where somebody might exploit that vulnerability. Yes, she's strong and independent, but at the end of the day, she is a 17-year-old girl. You know, she's still learning. She's still, you know, finding her place in the world and the fact that police I I mean on the one hand okay they're like oh well she's done it before we'll give it 24 hours type idea like we've seen this before but I get kind of why they thought that but I think it's a really wrong assumption to make I think that what what harm does it cause to investigate this, to see what you can find, to register as a missing person? Well, all you need to do is remove her once she comes home. I really don't think it takes that much effort or work for them to do that when it's the case of a missing minor. Yeah, of course. And like, of course, this does happen sometimes. Like people choose to run away and they don't want to be found. But it is lazy to write off a missing person, especially a minor, a teenage girl, right away before you've really done any of the work to find them, especially if their family who knows them best is telling you that their disappearance is out of character and that they need to be found. Yeah, more should have been done here. It's just one of the most unfortunate things in this case is Kara's history of, you know, disappearing that one time the year prior. And that probably led law enforcement to not take it seriously. And, you know, right or wrong, that is the reality of the situation. And they were not going to be quick to act, likely because of that previous situation. And it's just such an unfortunate element. And I feel so bad for Rhonda and Jim in this situation because they must have just felt so defeated because they knew that this wasn't their daughter, Kara. She wasn't just going to disappear again. They knew something was wrong and nobody was taking them seriously. 
Exactly. Kara's parents knew she hadn't run away. According to her parents, Kara had been showing a lot more maturity and actually had begun moving away from certain groups of friends. These were likely friends that probably had a poor influence on her, so her parents were glad that she had been venturing away from them. She had also made plans to go to community college after high school, and she seemed excited about it. So we've got a young lady here and she's making future plans. She's not only making future plans, she's putting down roots and she's showing this newfound kind of sense of maturity and growth. She wants to make plans for her future, to have a career, to go to college, to have all of these experiences. And her parents are seeing this evolution in who Kara is as an individual. And she's kind of blossoming and coming into her own. And then we have, you know, Law enforcement is kind of looking at her in this general sense, like the Kara of a year before is the Kara that they're seeing now, but that just really isn't the case. She's done so much growing in that year that, yeah, sure, the Kara of a year ago would run away, but Kara at 17, she's not going to run away. Exactly. What really stood out to her parents about the whole running away issue is the items that had been left in her bedroom. First, which we touched on before, was the carton of cigarettes. It's been noted many times by people who have talked about this case that any smoker who was intending to go away for a period of time would take more than one packet of cigarettes. She had a whole carton and only one pack was gone. She were planning to run away. Why would she only take one pack? Yeah, I call BS on that because I used to smoke when I was a teenager and my gosh, if I ever had a carton of cigarettes at one time, I would have been very excited. But if I was planning on going anywhere for more than, you know, even for an entire evening, I would want to have a full pack. And if I was going somewhere for a couple of days, I would want to have multiple packs. So the idea that Kara ran away without her phone charger and without more than, you know, we don't know how many cigarettes she actually had in that pack, but without the one pack of cigarettes that was missing from the carton and she didn't have her iPod and what teenager is going to want to leave without a phone charger an iPod and cigarettes when they're a smoker. This just isn't lining up with her being a runaway. Exactly. And she was an avid user of her phone. She would not have wanted to risk her phone dying while she was away from home. She would have brought that charger. She had plans to come home after school that day. And something happened in that time between her going to school and her leaving. It was learned that a friend of Kara's had actually gone into the police station and reported Kara missing around the same time that her parents had called to file the missing persons report. The friend stated that she hadn't physically seen Kara since May 2nd, but her parents knew immediately that that was because Kara had been skipping school. They knew for a certainty that they had seen her that morning on May 4th. Okay, so what are they actually telling us? That Kara, they saw the parents have seen her since the 4th, but her friend from school had only seen her two days earlier. So potentially Kara had skipped the two prior days of school. Is that what they're saying? I believe so. I believe Kara had likely skipped the classes maybe that she had with that friend. And the friend was a little bit concerned because she hadn't seen her. But that was kind of typical for Kara to skip those classes. So when the parents learned this, they, of course, I'm sure they felt some concern, but they probably realized pretty quickly that she had skipped some school and they had to like regroup and realize, no, we saw her definitely this morning, May 4th. So she was just skipping school. Something happened today on May 4th. So do we know during those, you know, days that the friend said Kara wasn't in class, did they talk to any other students or the school administration? Did we find out if Kara was at school at all? It didn't touch on that. I didn't see anything about that. Um, I do, I find it kind of odd that she was able to skip 
school so often to just like leave. In but maybe that's just because yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's just because my high school, I went to high school 2010 to 2014. So maybe that's just because me teachers were on that. Like if they saw you leaving class without a pass, they'd be like, What are you doing? Where are you going? So I guess maybe that's why that's odd to me. But they were like that when I went to high school too. Like I, it's just one of those things that I think it depends on your school, depends on the teachers and the administration at that school. But oh my gosh, like if I skipped a class, my dad would be getting a message within, you know, a couple hours of me skipping that class. Like they were on it. You weren't going to be getting away with skipping class and not having those uncomfortable conversations with the principal and a parent present. Exactly. So I didn't really think about that before, but like, I guess maybe it's just the school, like, again, it was what, 14 years ago. So maybe that school in particular just didn't pay attention, but I, I wish, I do wish that like the teachers and administration maybe had more information for police about Kara and where she was. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm trying to remember back to the disappeared episode and they were, because the mom was dropping the textbook for Kara at the office, right? Mm-hmm. Which if she's doing that, that means that Car needs the textbook and Car is planning on attending at least a class, which would involve that textbook, right? Yeah, and they would call her for sure. They would call her up to the office to come and get it. So it is possible or, you know, it's really difficult to say, but if the mom's doing that for Cara, Cara wanted her to do it. I think it's quite probable that she had attended some classes during those couple days. We just don't know which ones and exactly how many, because she was planning on attending at least one that she required that textbook for, but she just never got a chance to do so. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what I think. I'm wondering what time, maybe what time her mom dropped the textbook off because that would determine when the office called her up to come and get it. And I'm wondering if Kara had maybe already left at that point and planned to return later for the appropriate class for that textbook. Let's go back to that friend for a second. The one that was really concerned about Kara, like they hadn't seen her in a couple of days. Like what did they do? They apparently went like physically went into the police station to report her, like to report her missing. Um, We find out a little bit later that the friend, when they were questioned, said she went to the police because she didn't feel comfortable going to Cara's parents. And that's that kind of fuels a further inquiry into Jim because accusations, unfounded accusations were being thrown around about how Jim may have treated Cara. And that's why the friend thought something maybe was wrong and went to the police. But... Jim is given a polygraph, I believe, and he was quickly cleared as a person of interest. So I wanted to put that out there that he is not a person of interest. He is not a suspect or anything. It was just this this friend, this teenager was uh, participating in some accusations that were not true and kind of preemptively, I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, went to the police about it, but kind of had some misinformation there about why Kara wasn't at school. That's really weird though. Like, don't you think, imagine being 17 years old. Yeah, you're concerned for your friend. You haven't talked to them in a couple of days, but I would like to know if this friend did indeed call Kara and like, cause 
I would think that Rhonda would have seen this on the call log if she printed this out and would have seen this friend calling multiple times because we know Cara was around during these days. If you're so concerned, then wouldn't you have called Cara that day? And we assume Cara had her cell phone with her because her phone charger was left behind, but not her phone. So if this friend was so concerned over these days, then why didn't they get a hold of her? And was Cara avoiding them? Is that why she didn't answer the phone call? I, I really don't know and can't say, but I just think it is really strange to go to the police before going to the parents. Like for a 17-year-old kid to march into the police station and say, my friend is missing. When in reality, we know at this point, Cara hasn't been missing, actually missing for really that long. So it almost does feel like slightly preemptive or rush. I mean, knowing what we know now, it was probably the right thing to do, but this teenager really didn't know this at the time. Yeah, I feel like it wasn't touched on very much in the Disappeared episode or anywhere else, really. They didn't talk about it much, but I think maybe this, I think maybe this friend kind of had, she was feeding too much into some rumors or whatever these unfounded accusations were. And I don't really know. It's, I never thought about it before, but it is weird that she just kind of, walked into the police state like I feel like maybe she had other information I feel like she must have known something else about and maybe they it's kind of become more convoluted and then become these like accusations towards Jim but the reality is she might have known more about what was actually going on with Kara and maybe had a better sense of relationships or a relationship in particular that she may have had that was unhealthy or potentially abusive and she didn't feel comfortable sharing this information with the parents because maybe she'd been over to the house and you know how it can be weird disclosing this information to people that you know and have an emotional connection whereas going to the police they've got no emotional connection to this they're just going to take your information and you know do what they can with it and hopefully investigate it so I I can understand from that perspective I guess yeah I think maybe this friend had some more intimate knowledge of who Kara may have seen or been with or been talking to and that's why she was so she was concerned enough to walk into the police station so I think either this friend was feeding into unfounded accusations or the police were feeding into this accusation and decided to question Jim as a result. Um, so I don't know. She was a teenager, so maybe was kind of afraid to give out too much information about this person. Yeah, it's tough to say what's the motivation of teenagers. And I think it's a pretty normal you know, trajectory for an investigation to go to those closest to Kara to question the stepfather because, you know, he isn't the biological father. You've always got to look at those closest to who may be the potential victim at this point and see if they've got more answers, right? Because oftentimes those who perpetrate crimes against us are those closest to home. It's not that stranger danger. As I always say, it's usually those who are known to us. Exactly. So of course, you know, the family's questioned, Jim took a polygraph, he was quickly cleared, and despite police not taking her disappearance very seriously in the first several hours, they did actually begin conducting interviews that weekend, and I commend them for this. They realized this is this is not right. Something is not right here. We need to investigate further, so I'm very glad that they jumped on that quickly. Don Spears, captain of the Belton Police Department, also reached out to the media immediately. Yeah, I think getting the media involved 
you know, it can be a double-edged sword, but I do think that in most cases, you don't want to reveal too much, but you want to reveal as much as you can. At this point, they have no idea. They don't have a suspect. They've got no idea what happened and where Kara is. So the more information you can get out there, the more people see her face, the better. Exactly. Unfortunately, however, investigators are quickly met with a pretty big obstacle in this case. The same weekend that Kara disappeared... An EF-5 tornado ripped through the town of Greensburg, Kansas, which is just under five hours from Belton. This disaster was very close to where Kara disappeared and dominated the news stations and headlines in the area. The tornado leveled 95% of the town and killed 11 people. Because it was such a tragic event, it did overshadow Kara in the media. Yeah, it's really unfortunate when you get a tragedy like that, you know, and it kind of overshadows every single thing. It's like you see you see that with like Hurricane Katrina and stuff, all of those other crimes that happened around that and also crimes that were basically wiped out because of that. But you've got Kara's case where it's all of a sudden not seeming like it's top priority because people are kind of stuck in survival mode, right? You've got this major tornado and I don't know what an EF5 tornado is, but it sounds pretty bad. I believe it's one of the higher categories of tornado, like... I know hurricanes are rated on a like a scale of how devastating they are. I forget what the rating is, but I I believe F5 is a pretty pretty severe tornado and considering it did kind of destroy most of the town, yeah. I would say it's probably one of the higher ratings. 95% of the town? Can you imagine like this tornado literally ripped through every inch of this town, leaving only 5% untouched that wasn't leveled? That is absolutely crazy. Like I can't even imagine these poor people that lived there and 11 deaths too. That's just awful. Despite Kara's disappearance not receiving as much media attention as hoped, her story did pique the interest of investigative journalist Russ Potasik. Within 48 hours, Russ had traveled to Belton, Missouri to speak with Kara's parents. Initially, he is shut out because Jim and Rhonda were very wary of the media. Jim and Rhonda do, however, decide to speak with him, and after interviewing them and seeing the things left behind in her bedroom, Russ agrees that Kara did not simply run away. I think that's a pretty easy conclusion to draw. A teenager who's a smoker leaves behind a carton of cigarettes, like we keep saying, a phone charger and her iPod. I don't think this is a case of a runaway. Yeah, and I think it's it's really huge that a journalist with that kind of media power has taken interest and wants to push this story. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful thing too. You get a journalist who you know, finds a story like this and they take it very personally and it almost becomes theirs and they get to know the family and stuff. And I think it's a very, very powerful thing to have an ally like that on your side. So I'm sure that Jim and Rhonda really appreciated that. Within the first few days of the investigation, police reviewed surveillance footage from the school on the morning car disappeared. The footage showed Kara exiting the girl's restroom between 9.30 and 10 a.m. before stopping to talk to a girl in the hallway for a moment. After this brief conversation, she exits the building and leaves the school. Well, that's interesting. I would like to know who she talked to, what she said, and why she was exiting the school. Who was she going to meet, if anybody, right? Like these moments, these last kind of haunting images of Kara are kind of the last that we have of her. And so it's difficult not to ascribe a huge amount of significance and meaning onto those moments. It is super haunting. It's probably like the most prolific part of this whole case is just that those screenshots from that footage you can like it's it makes your skin crawl just knowing that that's the last 
seconds that people saw of her and no one knows where she went after that. That's literally when I think of this case, I watched the disappeared years ago, whenever it came out. And that's what stuck with me is those images, like they're still in my head, I can still think of them right now. And they are they're just really haunting because you know, something really dark happened to Kara very shortly thereafter. So police track down numerous students who were seen talking to Kara that morning. And they do also find the girl who was seen speaking with her on the surveillance footage. The girl said that Kara had asked if she wanted to leave with her for a while but she hadn't mentioned any of her plans for what she was going to do after she left the school. Well, that's interesting, right? So at this point, we've got to wonder, like, did Kara just kind of have no plans? She was just going to like fly by the seat of her pants, just kind of wing it. And if this girl wanted to hang out, she'd hang out with her. Or maybe she just didn't get that far in the conversation. And maybe she had plans to meet somebody. And maybe she thought that they were going to bring a friend. And so she should bring a friend. Maybe it was just such a brief conversation that she didn't really get to get into the details. All that she basically got into was that this girl wasn't going to join her. There are things that come up that make you wonder why she was if she had like a reason for leaving that day and that will come up very shortly so though she was known to frequently skip certain classes and return later in the day Kara did not return to school that day the surveillance footage was the last known sighting of Kara Kopetsky despite having discovered the footage incredibly early on in the investigation police did not release the footage to the public until six weeks after Kara's disappearance This gets me. They should have released that footage within a few days, because if you're looking for a missing minor, a 17 year old girl, you want to get her face plastered everywhere. And maybe somebody saw her. You want to get that footage out, I would think, to the public as quickly as possible. Exactly, because people can forget things that they see in passing that they think nothing of. They can forget that so quickly And the quicker you get that out, someone could be like, oh, I saw her getting into a car. Oh, I saw her talking to this person. I saw her doing this. But six weeks is a long time for people who don't really know what they're looking at to recall what they saw. Yeah, it's like a major missed opportunity. Tell me that they did look into her phone records thoroughly, though. They did. Kara's phone records were also closely examined, and it was discovered that her last phone call was made just before 1030 a.m., on the morning of May 4th, so likely just after she left the school. One of her phone calls that morning was a 20-minute conversation with her ex-boyfriend, Kyler Eust. A witness also placed Kara and Kyler together at some point that morning. He's the worst. He is. He may, His name makes me want to... <sighs> yeah. makes me shudder. You'll see what we mean as we get deeper into the story, but this guy is the absolute worst. Looking back now, I wonder if that witness was the friend who reported her missing the same day that her parents reported her missing. Ooh, good point. It might have been. That would actually make sense why this person would go to the police and not the parents, because going to the parents, you might get asked uncomfortable questions of things that you might not want to disclose. Like, say that Kara had said, He did A, B, C, and D to me, and that's why I broke up with him. Well, talking to the parents about those uncomfortable things might not be something that this person wants to do. But speaking of law enforcement, like I said earlier, there isn't that uncomfortable emotional thing or emotional kind of, you know, back and forth that she might have with the parents if she does know them. So going to police would make sense. So that's a great point. It might have been that same individual. Exactly. Now I wonder if police maybe were the ones who threw around those accusations, those unfounded accusations about Jim, because maybe the friend had just vaguely stated that they didn't feel comfortable going to the parents. 
and maybe an assumption was made. Ooh, that's a really good point because somebody could have just said, and they might not have gone into any detail and were purposefully vague about why they didn't want to go to the parents. And then the police start spitballing ideas. Well, why does this kid not want to go to the parents? It's weird for a 17 year old to walk into a police station, but it isn't weird if this teenage girl potentially had talked about any kind of for example, say violence, sexual violence, coercive control, any of these sorts of things may be really uncomfortable to discuss. And she might feel like she's betraying Kara to go to her parents when she doesn't know if Kara is really missing and something's happened to her. But if she talks to the police, well, there might not be any repercussions with Kara after the fact. But if she goes and tells the parents all of these things before knowing for sure Kara is not coming back, it might ruin their friendship. So there is that element. Yeah. And I wonder, we'll find out later, but I wonder if maybe she didn't say any names or make any direct accusations because maybe she was afraid of this person that she saw Kara with. Fair play. I'd be afraid if I was a teenage girl knowing what we know about this guy. Exactly. And because she didn't make any names or mentions, police just kind of came up with their own assumptions and story about why she didn't want to say anything further. Okay, so did Kara have like any cash or anything in her room? Did she have like credit cards or a bank card or anything? Did they check her accounts? Well, a few weeks after her disappearance, police discovered that her debit card had been left behind in her locker at school, along with her backpack. But there had been no activity on her bank account. Oh, that is just never a good sign, is it? Mm-mm, nope, she's not. This is someone who smoked. She would have been buying cigarettes. She would have probably been buying her own food and there was nothing on her bank statement. She had not been spending any money. Yeah, don't like that. Don't like that one bit. Not in a missing persons case. This is a teenage girl who's got no other access to funds. If she's not using her bank card, how is she procuring any kind of cash? We've got to wonder at this point, is she even alive or has somebody taken her? Her debit card and backpack were left untouched in her locker for over a month after she disappeared. It wasn't even the school who had called her parents to allow them to come retrieve her belongings. It was actually a school custodian who called her parents and told them that if they didn't come to get her belongings, they would end up getting thrown away. That just feels really insensitive to me. I would think that the school would go out of their way to make sure that the police got Kara's belongings first. Like maybe there's some kind of clues in her locker or in her belongings. I would think that this would be potential evidence and it shouldn't be a custodian calling the parents. It should be the police going to the school administration and saying, we need a warrant for this locker or you need to give us permission to go in this locker. We need to take her belongings. Perhaps there's some clue to her disappearance or something that could give us an idea of what happened to Kara. Exactly. It's strange that they didn't investigate her locker at all because that's her personal space. Some of the most secretive things teenagers keep in their lockers away from their parents. So there could have been, who knows, there could have been vital information in that locker about who she was hanging out with, who she was talking to, what was going on in her life. And they never thought to investigate it. It's another missed opportunity. Her MySpace account showed zero activity as well, and her cell phone had either died or been shut off shortly after she disappeared, meaning investigators were unable to ping a last known location. Chelsea, do you even know what MySpace is? You're too young for MySpace, aren't you? I do. I do. <laughs> I remember in sixth grade, I begged my mom, I begged my mom to let me have a MySpace, and she finally caved, and I finally got a MySpace. 
And I remember doing all those little questionnaires on the bulletins and I would scour for hours for like layouts and the right music. It was fun. I loved MySpace. I thought it was like, I got rid of my Facebook so many years ago because I just was done with Facebook, but I used to love MySpace. I've seen a few people lately. I think it was the, the podcast Drunk Theory that they just got a TikTok and a MySpace. I'm like, MySpace is still out there? I can't even <laughs> believe that. Oh my gosh, I didn't know it was still up. Oh, a little old Tom. He didn't ask us for anything. He didn't sell our information. He just wanted to be in our top eight. He really did. That was a very small price to pay. <laughs> Tom, we love you. Now we learn of possibly the most important piece of evidence collected so far. It was learned that on April 28, 2007, six days before Kara disappeared, she had said that her ex-boyfriend, Kyler Eust, had waited outside of her workplace for her to finish her shift and then forced her inside of his vehicle. He drove her around against her will until she managed to jump out of the vehicle and escape. As a result of this incident, Kyler was allegedly charged with misdemeanor disorderly conduct and assault. Okay, so I see some problems here, right? You've got this guy who's obviously allegedly abusive and allegedly controlling, and he's throwing her into this vehicle and, you know, he's confining her against her will. He's not letting her out. And we have to ask, had Kara not escaped, what would have happened to her that day? And also, if he's got these pending charges and they're coming down on him as a result of this incident with Kara, well, that's looking a little bit like motive to me. This is the textbook jealous, possessive ex-boyfriend. And I feel like her mother, at the very least, based on what we're about to learn next, I feel like her mother probably had an idea that he should definitely be questioned about what was going on. Because on April 30th, 2007, four days before she went missing, Kara and her mother filed a restraining order against Kyler Eust. In the filing, Kara stated her own writing that during the course of their nine-month relationship, Kyler had kidnapped her, restrained her, choked her, and threatened to cut her throat. Kara had also <laughs> wrote in this filing that Kyler's abuse had, quote, gotten worse over time, end quote. Oh, so it's the typical pattern of an abuser, right? It's like the frog in a boiling in the boiling pot of water. If you throw it in a boiling pot of water, it jumps out. But you got somebody like Kyler, who probably most likely in a situation like that, probably loved bombed Kara and gave her all kinds of attention. And then he slowly brought that water to a boil. And at that point, she's kind of stuck in this situation where she likely felt like, you know, she couldn't escape. And I mean, for a teenage girl, a nine-month relationship is like... It feels like a decade. It feels like so long. So she had to have just felt like, how do I get out of this? How do I escape this guy that's got this huge amount of control over me and the threatening to cut her throat? Like that's scary. And it's really, really specific. You've got to wonder like when he did this, was he holding a knife? Did he have a knife on him? And choking her also, it's just, there's so much not to like about this. Exactly. And she is, she's 17 um, anyone in an abusive relationship is, of course, vulnerable, but this is such a young, vulnerable girl who doesn't know how to get out of a situation. Okay, so we're looking at May 4th that Kara disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. So when was she scheduled to appear in court, like regarding these kind of charges or that restraining order? She was scheduled to appear in court as a witness for the filing on May 10th, 2007. But of course, she never showed up because she had disappeared six days earlier 
the filing of this restraining order was never finalized. Oh, weird. That sounds like a major coincidence. Like, Kyler, you are not subtle, you know, allegedly. We're looking at, it's like a week difference, basically. You're looking at like, I would think at this point, Kyler's got to be freaking out. He's got these other charges from Quara, and now there's a restraining order. Things aren't looking good for Kyler. But from, you know, what we gather here, he's just the type of guy that seems to handle his problems with more violence, which is sort of a pattern of behavior that has been established through his interactions with Kara or alleged interactions with Kara, because some of these can't be proven because Kara is no longer here. But... It is rather convenient, isn't it? That just basically a week prior to when Kara is supposed to show up in court, just poof, she disappears. This is, this is absolutely textbook and it makes my skin crawl. Russ Potasik actually did track down Kyler and he interviewed him about his and Kara's relationship. Kyler did admit that their relationship was rocky, but he denied any allegations of abuse and claimed that he had no idea where Kara could be. Police apparently confirmed that they had questioned Kyler and given him a polygraph exam, which he passed. But when we consider all of the suspicious things we've learned about Kyler so far, it might be best to take that polygraph with a grain of salt. I mean, I think we should always take a polygraph with a grain of salt. I think when you're looking at totality of evidence, it's something you want to consider to be like a contributing factor if somebody passed or failed, but only in a certain context do you view it as useful because there's so many people that, you know, you got anxious individuals who are going to fail a polygraph or they've got nothing to do with it, but you've got somebody with an underlying pathology or say, for example, sociopathy, where they might not have those normal, you know, or typical physiological responses, such as, you know, any other person taking it. So they're not going to have those spikes in blood pressure and they're not going to have that, you know, spike in body temperature and perspiration. So you're going to have an atypical reaction from someone like that. And from what we learn about Kyler Eust, it's very possible that there was some kind of underlying pathology at play and that that could be a contributing factor for why he was able to pass a polygraph. It should never be so simplistic as he passed a polygraph He's innocent. That is incredibly too reductive. It's like sniffer dog evidence. It should give you kind of a place to point you in the right direction, maybe, but it should never be definitive. Police also stated that Kyler had an alibi, but they never specified what that alibi was. Well, that's a little bit sketchy, guys. Like, we investigated him. We swear he's got an alibi. It checks out, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Exactly. That always threw me when I was researching this case. Like I dug so deep trying to figure out what his alibi was. Where was he? Where did he say he was? Did anyone say they were with him? What, what is this about? Yeah. It's sort of like a black hole in this case, right? You've got him saying that he's got an alibi, but like, why wouldn't you just say he was with a friend? Why wouldn't you add a slight bit of specificity to the fact that you say he's got an alibi and you basically cleared him? It's sort of like, we didn't investigate that. And then after the polygraph, I'm not saying they didn't investigate him thoroughly, but it's appearing that way from the outside observer looking in. And that after the polygraph, they seem to dismiss him as having any potential hand in Kara's disappearance. And then they're just sort of like throwing in that for support. Oh, he's also got an alibi, but we can't tell you what that is. Exactly. He has so much dirty laundry. He has so many skeletons in his closet already that we've already learned about. And they just decided that a polygraph would be enough to clear him despite all the other information that we have. Yeah, it, I, I'm not saying that the police were lazy in this case, but it just does sound a little bit lazy because we 
you know, given what we find out later with the updates and stuff, it really doesn't feel like they did their due diligence and investigated Kyler to the extent that they should have. It just feels like there were some holes there. They could have done more. It just feels like enough wasn't done. And had they done their due diligence, had they investigated him thoroughly, we might've got more answers for, you know, Rhonda and Jim a lot quicker, but that just wasn't the case. I agree a hundred percent. So two weeks after Carr's disappearance on May 17th, 2007, a man called the Belton Police Department claiming to have seen Cara at a Burger King in Lewisburg, Kansas. And Lewisburg is only about 22 miles away from Belton. I mean, I witness testimony. I witness statements. I always take those with a grain of salt. You know, she's a 17-year-old, you know, cute-looking girl. I've seen pictures of her. She could look like a thousand different other girls in the area. I mean, it's worth looking into. But unless it's somebody who knew her who saw her, I always take these with a grain of salt. Exactly. She is, from the pictures, she was absolutely beautiful, very striking. And I think it would be... It would be hard to find someone to confuse her with, but I think also, I think they took a little bit too much time with these. And as we find out, it did not pan out the way they wanted it to. Investigators could not confirm the sighting via surveillance footage because the restaurant's cameras were allegedly not working that day. Yeah, it's like pretty difficult in these situations. You know what I mean? when you don't have any surveillance footage, you've got one person saying this could be Kara. And like, she is a very striking young woman and she does have a unique look, but you get like some people who just think that all teenagers look alike. And, oh, she's a really pretty teenage girl with kind of like light colored hair and pale skin, you know? She could be any mm-hmm. number of girls. And I think you've got people her own age who are much more likely to be able to pick her out of a lineup. But you get people who are just like, oh, I think I saw this girl on the news five days ago. And you've got this really vague picture in your head of what it looks like, unless there's a missing poster of her hanging hanging in the Burger King and the guy's going, ah, or the woman or whatever is going, that's her. That's a different story. But if you've kind of seen it days prior and it's there and you're like, maybe that's the person, because I think part of people really do have, you know, this altruistic motivation when it comes to eyewitness identifications and they really want it to be helpful. And it comes from a really good place. I think some people just want to insert themselves into investigations, but I do think that that's a minority. I think most people think that they're helping. Exactly. And I also think it's it's just so convenient. Why does this always happen? The footage is not working. The footage was taped over. The footage was deleted. We don't have it. Why, why does that happen so often? Every one of these cases, right? Like, okay, so the person that saw Kara at the Burger King, was she all by herself? Witnesses actually also stated that they had seen a man with Kara, apparently, at the restaurant. So police did develop a composite sketch of the man based on these statements. However, none of Kara's friends or family recognized the man in the sketch. So this could mean any number of things. If Kara was kidnapped, like we have to ask ourselves, we have to ask ourselves, <laughs> would this person, you know, go to a Burger King with her where she could clearly alert any of the staff or other patrons to her situation? I feel like if she was kidnapped and didn't leave of her own volition or accord, that it would be a pretty poorly calculated choice on the part of her abductor to bring her to a public place somewhere like a Burger King. So if we are to believe that that sighting took place, then we almost have to assume that Kara left of her own accord, but that doesn't line up with leaving behind the cigarettes, the phone charger, and the iPod. It is interesting that multiple other tips came in about sightings of Kara in Lewisburg, 
And these were from grocery stores, convenience stores, fast food restaurants. There were tips claiming to have seen her all around town. Yeah, but like, okay, so I bet you're going to tell me, but this has got to be somebody who's just like resembling Kara, right? One of these tips did lead them to a grocery store where a witness claimed they spotted Kara working at the store. After following up on this tip, police discovered that a cashier at the store bore a striking resemblance to Kara and that the cashier actually had a friend who resembled the man in the composite sketch. Okay, well, this explains it, right? She's got, there's like a Kara doppelganger out there and someone's looking exactly like her, which explains why she's being seen everywhere. Because if she'd been abducted, why is she working at a grocery store? And even if she wanted to run away, why would she do so, you know, somewhere so close where all these witnesses are seeing her? It's not really lining up with the facts that we know. So now that we know that she's got, you know, a doppelganger out there, it makes far more sense. And so many times in this case, do they, they come so close seemingly to having a lead and it just does not pan out because after a month of Kara being missing on June 2nd, 2007, an 18 year old girl named Kelsey Smith disappeared from Overland Park, Kansas, which is about 20 miles from Belton. Kelsey was last seen in a Target parking lot, and police were quickly able to review the surveillance footage from the Target. Footage showed Kelsey entering the store and then exiting the store with the items she had purchased only 11 minutes later. In the footage, there appears to be a man popping up in every aisle that Kelsey was in, and he exited the store just as she was going to check out. This kind of surveillance footage where it's like right before somebody is murdered or is abducted is the creepiest type of surveillance footage because you know nothing good is going to come of that. And when you're looking at, it, looking at it through the context or through the lens of knowing what's happened to this individual, it, it's just so haunting and very, very upsetting. With this case especially, footage from outside of the Target showed Kelsey putting her items in her car and much to the shock of police shows someone forcing her into the passenger side seat of her car and driving away with her. Her actual abduction had been caught on camera. A few hours after her disappearance, Kelsey's car was found in a Macy's parking lot across the street from the Target. Her purse, wallet, and the items she had purchased were still in the car, but there was no sign of Kelsey. This is just the worst. They've got it all on camera, but they're just, they're too late. And whatever's happened to Kelsey has already happened and they're just tuning in after the fact. Police also reviewed footage from outside of the Macy's where her car was found. And it showed that it was left there around 9.17 p.m., about two hours after it was driven out of the Target parking lot with Kelsey in the passenger seat. Also in this footage from outside of the Macy's, a man was seen exiting the car after he leaves it there and running toward the street. The man does appear to match the general appearance of the man suspected of following Kelsey around the Target. Well, that's not a surprise. I'm sure that this guy's clearly the suspect. He's been following her around. Then we've got all of this surveillance footage. It's seeming like the police or investigators probably have a pretty clear picture of who the perpetrator is, whoever did whatever had been done to Kelsey. Unidentified fingerprints were also collected from the driver's side seatbelt. This case comes up because it was initially suspected that Kara and Kelsey's disappearances were connected. They were about the same age, they had similar appearance, and they lived in close proximity to one another. I could see why they thought that it was connected. I mean, you've got really similar victim profiles. That, that makes sense to me. The extensive footage of Kelsey's last moments, and especially the footage of her actual abduction, garnered tremendous media attention, much more attention than Kara's case had gotten, despite the strong speculation that the cases were connected. Yeah, it's just that 
dang tornado, right? If that tornado hadn't, you know, ripped through leveling 95% of that town and killing 11 people, then I'm sure Kara's would have got a lot more attention. It is really disheartening that Kara's story just continued somehow to get drowned out. Yeah, it's really good that Disappeared featured her story and really brought it to a wider audience. Just four days after Kelsey's disappearance, on June 6, 2007, the FBI used cell phone records to ping her last known location. They traced her cell phone to Longview Lake, Missouri, about 10 miles from Belton. And I believe I read that only an hour after they traced her cell phone, a body was found in a wooded area of Longview Lake. You can keep going. Both families waited anxiously to hear whether the body was either of their daughters. The body was quickly identified as that of 18-year-old Kelsey Smith. On the evening of June 6, 2007, the same day that her body was found, police arrested 26-year-old Edwin Hall for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Kelsey Smith. Edwin Hall was actually married with a child, and he was in the process of trying to leave town with his family when he was arrested. Oh, well, I mean, at least this family was able to, I guess, find that her body was located, like find her body in a relatively short period of time. That's never the result that people want, but at least there's an element of resolution in finding out what indeed happened to this woman. You know what I mean? Like what happened to her? And you just don't have that with Kara's parents at this point. And I mean... The fact that he was trying to leave town doesn't look very good for you, Edwin Hall. Exactly. And Hall did have a history of violence. His vehicle was also identified in the surveillance footage from outside of the target. Edwin Hall was charged with the aggravated kidnapping and first-degree murder of Kelsey Smith on June 7, 2007. One year after his arrest, he pleaded guilty to the murder. Well, at least these parents get some justice for Kelsey. I mean, if only Kara's parents, you know, were kind of given the same amount of, I guess, attention from the public and from law enforcement. It's just unfortunate timing that her case got so much more media attention. But I am really, really pleased that her family did get that kind of justice and resolution. They got to find out what happened to Kelsey and, you know, Edwin Hall also pled guilty like that's got to be a relief exactly i can't imagine how they were both families were in limbo waiting for that identification and then for it to come back and car's parents still had no answers car's parents actually attended his sentencing the beckfords and the smiths were very supportive of one another which is not surprising their daughters went missing around the same time and it was always strongly suspected for some time that the cases were connected Kara's mother, Rhonda, actually says that after the sentencing, she waited outside of the courtroom for Kelsey's mom so that she could offer support and be there for her. Searches for Kara were conducted in Longview Lake where Kelsey's body was found, but no evidence was ever discovered that indicated that Kara was ever in the area. Edwin Hall has never been linked to the disappearance of Kara Kopetsky. I mean, I see that it's compelling, really similar victim profiles, but the one bright spot in this case, I think, is the connection that these two families made. The fact that, you know, Rhonda was there to help support Kelsey's mom. I really love to hear that when families of victims can come together and really lean on each other, because I don't think anybody knows what that parent is going through more than somebody else in the exact same position. Three years after Kara disappeared, a massive search was conducted in the northern part of Belton. 
This search included about 235 officers from different organizations, including the FBI, the Kansas City Police Department, as well as many Marine Corps service members. The scope of this search was significantly larger than that of any searches conducted before. Because of this, it was suspected that new information about Caro's disappearance had come to light, but of course, police denied this. Yeah, of course they did. Not really a surprise here. Yeah. I think it was fairly obvious that something else had come up, but they just didn't want to put that out into the world. They didn't want to put that out into the media just to, I guess, protect the integrity of the case, but... Who knows what their underlying motivations were, but I'm assuming that they got some kind of tip or some kind of information that led them here, and they just weren't ready to share that with the media. Maybe they didn't want to tip off the perpetrator and let them, like, tip their hands so that this person knew that they were on to them. <clears throat> Kyler. <laughs> In 2009, not long before this search was done, a witness had reported that Kyler Eust had discussed with them his relationship with Kara. The witness stated that Kara, no. The witness stated that Kyler had been angry with Kara because he didn't want her to be with anyone else, and he was very bitter over their split. The witness also stated that Kyler told them that something bad had happened to Kara. Well, that never looks good when somebody like that, he just can't keep his trap shut and he's almost bragging about it saying, oh, I was really upset that she broke up with me and I didn't want her to be with anyone else. So if I can't have her, nobody can. It's like, Kyler, you are just that gross stereotype that we all hate right now. If this alleged conversation did indeed take place, you know what I mean? Exactly. He literally cannot wait to just tell the world about what he did. He's trying to hide it, but he still wants to talk about it. Yeah, I think on some level, it's like, I really don't feel like he's sorry for what he's done. I feel like it's just more of an element of like, hmm, I showed her, you know? It's almost like bragging to a degree. In 2011, Kyler Eust was put on probation for two years after pleading guilty to beating and choking his pregnant 18-year-old girlfriend at the time. The victim stated that Kyler had threatened to kill her and even told her that he had, quote, killed ex-girlfriends before, end quote. Do you notice how he uses plural? Not, I killed an ex-girlfriend before, but I've killed ex-girlfriends before. Like, maybe he's taking liberties with that. Like, he may have just exaggerated it in order to sound, like, bad, right? Like, oh, I've killed ex-girlfriends before. But I think it's threatening enough to say I killed an ex-girlfriend before. Exactly. This... This man has some skeletons in that closet of his. Just a quick trigger warning for the next 30 seconds or so, we will be mentioning acts of animal abuse, so if that's something you don't wish to hear, feel free to skip ahead. On July 5th, 2011, Kyler smashed a kitten's head on the bathroom floor. And on July 20th, 2011, he drowned two kittens in a bag in a creek. And these incidents are based on statements from another girlfriend of his at the time. He was charged with two counts of animal abuse for these acts. This is so reprehensible and so disgusting. There is a special place in hell for people who do things like this to animals. I'm getting definite Luca Magnata vibes from this. It's just so gross. Why do people have to hurt and kill animals? And I, of course, it's absolutely reprehensible killing human beings. But, you know, it's like killing small children and animals. They are so innocent and so helpless and they're completely at your mercy and to take advantage and to exploit that and to take joy in that is just the very very worst of humanity i did read or watch something recently that said something about how so many killers 
start out abusing not just any animal, but cats. So many killers who end up harming and abusing women start out by harming and abusing cats. And cats are such a, they're such a symbol of the feminine that this is just a pattern. Yeah. I've heard the same thing that it's very much representative of women and feminine energy. And so If you're doing that, it's basically like you're using it as like kind of a stand in for, you know, a woman. And that might be your way that you start and you slowly escalate and graduate to actually doing it on, you know, human women. And I think that that happens a lot. And I, you know, the McDonald triad isn't perfect and it isn't a totally an accurate predictor of future criminal behavior or serial killers, but we do see some correlation between things such as animal abuse and, you know, people who become serial killers or murderers. Although we can't prove causation and we can't prove causality, but we can say that there definitely is a correlation there. And of course, there's many other contributing factors, but, you know, animal abuse is just the absolute worst. Also in 2011, another witness came forward stating that Kyler had confessed to them that he strangled Kara and placed her body in the woods. Sometime also in 2011, it was learned that on May 11, 2009, someone had brought a box into the police department. The box was marked by police, quote, evidence received for Kara Kopetsky missing person case, end quote, and was a clear plastic shoebox container. The person who brought the box in claimed that they had found the box in an apartment that they were renting that had formerly been rented by Kyler Eust. The box contained notes, pictures, and other personal belongings of Kara's, but those other belongings have not been specified. Okay, so now we've got her personal belongings that may or may not have been trophies because he's obviously stupid enough that he leaves this stuff behind. And then we also have him confessing to a friend that he strangled her and left her in the woods. Like this guy just can't shut up and he can't stop bragging about what he's done. He's just going to sink his own battleship at this point. In 2012, yet another witness stated that Kyler had confessed to them that he had picked Kara up from school that day and that they had gotten into an argument that turned physical. The witness goes on to say that Kyler confessed to choking her out. That is now three witnesses so far who have come forward years after Kara's disappearance, trying to say, hello, Kyler confessed to me that he killed Kara Kopetsky. What? Are the police at this point going, oh, no, like he didn't do it, guys. We've got a solid alibi and that polygraph. Don't forget the polygraph. Like, guys, at this point, you've got multiple witnesses who are coming forward. This isn't one person saying this. We basically got him bragging to multiple people. And we've got this stuff that is potential evidence related to her disappearance and potential murder at this point. And he's The police have to have been taking it seriously, going, whoa, like maybe we got it wrong. Maybe that alibi isn't so solid. Exactly. Three different witnesses at three different periods of time. In 2013, Kyler was sentenced to three years and nine months in a federal prison after pleading guilty to a felony drug trafficking charge. In 2015, while incarcerated on those drug charges, Kyler was again questioned about Kara's disappearance, but he declined to answer any questions. Oh, now he clams up when they're questioning him. Before he's like chatty Kathy, he just can't seem to keep his trap shut. But when investigators come to him, he's like, no, I'm a steel trap, guys. Not going to let you know anything. In 2016, Kyler's former cellmate contacted police and told them that after being questioned in 2015, 
Kyler had asked them for help in creating an alibi regarding Carl's disappearance. I thought he already had one. No kidding. The The cellmate also informed police that Kyler had confessed to them that he had strangled Kara and disposed of her body. Oh, like now we're at four people that Kyler has confessed to. We've got this evidence. It's, and he needs to have an alibi. Like, oh, what is this alibi you talked about, police? Clearly Kyler doesn't actually have one because now he needs assistance in constructing one. So I question if he ever had one or if they were just potentially being lazy and we're like, oh, he's obviously innocent because of the polygraph. Let's just say he's got an alibi and then they'll think that we've done our due diligence. Not saying that's what happened, but it's kind of what feels like what happened here. So now the tally is up to four witnesses, four different people at four different points in time, telling police that Kyler Eust had confessed to murdering Kara Kopetsky. Four witnesses with the exact same story about what Kyler had told them. Keep going. This guy literally cannot keep his mouth shut about what he did. Kyler had also previously admitted to police that he disliked that Kara saw other people after their on-again, off-again relationship. It's pretty well established at this point that Kyler is jealous, controlling, violent, and abusive. Oh yeah, I think we've pretty much established that. And we've also established that Kyler likes to brag about what he's done. He's now told four different witnesses And we have evidence like it is just piling up against him. It's not looking good for you, Kyler. So now we come to 2016, nine years after Kara's disappearance. At this point in time, nothing had been found of Kara. Not her cell phone, not her clothes, not Kara herself, not even a strand of hair. On September 8th, 2016, 21-year-old Jessica Runyons of Raymore, Missouri, attended a party with Kyler Eust. It wasn't exactly clear in articles whether Jessica and Kyler were dating or if they were just friends or acquaintances. Witnesses at the party said that Kyler was heavily intoxicated and was becoming increasingly aggressive with Jessica. She was last seen leaving the party with Kyler to give him a ride home. On September 10th, two days after she was last seen, Jessica's car was found burned in a wooded area. Well, there we go again. We've got this connection with the woods. We've got Kyler telling one of these witnesses that... He strangled Kara and left her body in the woods. And now we've got Kyler telling this witness that he left the body in the woods after he strangled Kara. And then we have this Jessica Runyons who is supposed to drive Kyler home and then her car is found burned out in the woods. So again, we've got this woods connection and we've kind of got a question. Is this a possible disposal site for bodies for Kyler? Very quickly after her car was discovered, a friend of Kyler's came forward with information. This friend stated that he was with Kyler when he burned the vehicle and that Kyler had accidentally burned his face and hands. The witness also stated that Kyler had admitted to strangling Jessica Runyons and hiding her body in the woods. Again, chatty Kathy, same method of disposal that he's admitting to these witnesses. So he, again, can't keep his mouth shut. And he's admitting that he left Jessica's body in the same kind of manner of disposal and location as he had told the witness that he did with Kara's. So we're seeing a bit of a pattern being established here. On September 12th, 2016, Kyler was arrested in connection with the burned vehicle. And he did, in fact, have burns on his face, hands and arms. Not only that, but he had scratches on his face. Super suspect, Kyler. Like, you've got burns all over your face and hands. Like, I'm just so glad that Jessica fought for her life and that he managed to burn himself during this 
during committing this crime because clearly the marks were left all over him. Like you were the last person seen with her and now the burned out car is found and weird. Kyler's got burns all over him and her her remains will later be found. So we'll find out what happens to her, but she clearly fought back, which will explain the scratches, right? Like he's just making it really hard for law enforcement to screw this up. Kyler, of course, pleaded not guilty to the charge of knowingly burning a vehicle. And now we finally start to get some answers. A few months later, on April 3rd, 2017, a mushroom hunter discovered human remains in a rural wooded area of Cass County, Missouri, where Kara had lived at the time of her disappearance. Have you watched the TV show Hannibal? I haven't. I think I started it, but didn't get very far. There's like one episode where there's this one guy that he's difficulty, he's a serial killer, has difficulty making connections with people. So he buries these women's bodies and mushrooms grow out of them. And then the fungus is all connected. And so he's establishing these connections with these bodies and all this fungus is growing underneath and mushrooms. And it's macabre, but that show does this weird thing where they make these really macabre and horrific things quite beautiful and like avant-garde it's a really weird kind of dynamic but it's an interesting show getting into the psychology of why these people do what they do and also the dynamic between will graham and hannibal is fascinating but that's what it made me think and i'm like oh mushrooms of course they were growing like we've got kyler who's potentially disposing of dead bodies here I didn't even think about that before. I always thought it was weird in articles where they would specify that it was a mushroom hunter. I never thought that maybe they were specifying because mushrooms were growing. That's why he found them because there was a body where he was hunting for his mushrooms. Well, I think it's really nutrient dense. And so mushrooms will, I think, often grow. Don't quote me. Like I'm obviously not an expert in that, but I think mushrooms will grow close to a site of decomposition because as something breaks down, there are a great amount of nutrients that go into the soil. So I I do think that they can thrive and flourish there. So perhaps there was a cluster of mushrooms and hence why he discovered her there. Yeah, I never thought about that. A search of the area was conducted and a second set of human remains was discovered. The first set of remains were quickly identified as 21-year-old Jessica Runyon's. It wasn't until a few months later, on August 17, 2017, that the second set of remains were positively identified as those of Kara Kopetsky, missing since May 4, 2007. I mean, finally, we've got Rhonda and Jim able to get some kind of resolution and that they can bring Kara home. This was insane to see after watching the episode and becoming kind of invested, you know, watching the interview with Kyler that Russ Potasik had conducted, which they aired in the episode of Disappeared. When I looked up all these updates, I was dumbfounded that they actually found her. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either. It's one of those things where like on an episode of Disappeared, when it actually gets solved and they find the body, it like boggles my mind because those episodes would keep me awake at night thinking like, what happened to her? Where does somebody dispose of a body that you're never going to find it if that's indeed what happened? You know, and then when they actually find the body, it's such a shock and such a great shock, right? Because you know that 
Jim and Rhonda have been suffering. Like, you know that they happen. You can see it in the disappeared episode. It's very evident that these are two parents that very much love Kara. And so to know that they at least got to bring her body home and, you know, either give her a burial or cremate her, whatever they chose to do, at least they got that type of resolution. Exactly. 10 years after her disappearance and Kara had finally been found. On October 4th, 2017, Kyler Eust was charged with the murders of Kara Kopetsky and Jessica Runyans. He pleaded not guilty to both murders. Since he was charged three and a half years ago, there have been repeated delays with his trial. His defense team has made every move they possibly can to bide this man more time. I mean, of course they have. I, I mean... It seems like there's kind of irrefutable evidence to prove that this is a pattern here. And we know that there's two and we've got to ask, is there more? I mean, this case I'm bringing to you and some of you are probably wondering, oh, this sounds like it's solved. Well, it's technically unsolved right now because Kyler hasn't been tried and convicted as of yet right now where we are in 2021, right? So, you know, hopefully in the future, this case will go to trial soon and he will be convicted of the murder of Kara Kopetsky. In August, 2019, Kyler's attorneys filed to have him declared mentally unfit to stand trial. His attorneys stated that they, quote, have a good faith belief that Kyler Yu suffers from a mental disease or defect, and that as a result of his mental disease or defect, he lacks the competence to proceed, end quote. They cite that this belief is based on the opinion of Dr. Jose Matthews, who was retained by the defense to perform an evaluation of Kyler. I mean, really? Right. Like the thing is, his mental soundness hasn't really been called into question. And, you know, say, for example, if he exhibited something like borderline psychopathy or sociopathy, those aren't something that you could get away with as making you incompetent or unable to stand trial. This guy isn't a paranoid schizophrenic where he's hearing voices or something like that that would impede his ability to make sound choices and not be able to differentiate between right and wrong. We haven't seen that with Kyler used. That doesn't seem to be an accurate representation of his mental state. It sounds like they're reaching and I get why they're doing it. Any good lawyer is going to try this type of defense if they can get away with it. Exactly. It really just seems like they know that he's probably going down. He's probably going to be convicted of this and they are trying every avenue they possibly can to win his case. On September 3rd, 2019, a judge granted the request to again have Kyler mentally evaluated to determine whether or not he was competent to stand trial. And apparently he was deemed competent, because trial dates have since been scheduled. In December 2019, Kyler's attorneys filed another request, and this one was to have items of physical evidence retested for DNA. In February 2020, this request was also granted. The motion stated that the company DNA Solutions must be granted access to both sets of remains. The motion also stated that DNA Solutions must be allowed to test hair recovered from a white SUV in 2013. I assume that the hair collected from the SUV has something to do with Kara's case, since Jessica didn't disappear until 2016. Yeah, unless we're speaking about time travel, it's got to be due to Kara's case, or could be potentially some other case that maybe he's tied to something that we don't know if they're not giving up the information, which they seem to be mum through a lot of this. But I think there's a high probability that it's got to be linked somehow to Kara's case. And the cops, 
they said that Kyler passed a polygraph and they said that he had an alibi, but then he later goes on to say that he needs help constructing an alibi. So I just don't get, did they ever give the information on how they looked into him or corroborated this alibi in the first place that he allegedly had? Not that I know of. I couldn't find any articles, not even in the disappeared episode. I could find nothing to state what this alleged alibi was. And I'm extremely interested to see in the trial what maybe his defense has to say about his supposed alibi. Yeah, I think we'll find out exactly what type of alibi, if any, was given to the investigators. I'm not saying that they weren't given an alibi, but I'm also saying there is a potential that they could have just dismissed him as a suspect after that initial polygraph and then just told people, yeah, he had an alibi. Forget this guy. He's not a suspect. We don't know. And we don't know how much validity and how much weight the specific investigator who might have said he had an alibi was giving to that polygraph at the time. So a new trial was scheduled to begin on July 27th, 2020, but in June 2020, Kyler's attorneys filed another motion to request another delay. They stated that COVID-19 had, quote, seriously hampered their ability to provide counsel and interview potential witnesses, end quote. His attorneys have also argued that there were items in discovery that were not presented to them until 2019. Kyler's defense has also alleged that an investigating officer was at some point during investigations having a sexual relationship with a witness. I hate when this sort of misconduct bleeds into these cases because it really tends to overshadow the issues at hand, which is the most important thing, which is Kara. And then you've got this, you know, officer who's, you know, said to be having a sexual relationship with a witness. Like, really, can you not wait until the investigation is concluded or at least until these sorts of things are done and tied up? It just, it's really, really poor judgment on the part of this officer. Exactly. It really sounds like his defense is just pulling out all the stops and it's so frustrating to even read about. I can't imagine what her family is having to deal with. In September, 2020, a judge stated that Kyler's trial would begin in the spring of 2021. Now in early February of 2021, Kyler's defense team has filed another motion This time, they want to delay the trial yet again and are requesting a change of judge before the trial begins. They claim that they have received an anonymous letter alleging that the current judge presiding over the trial has ties to one of the victim's families. That judge has maintained that he has no idea why anyone would make such a claim and that he has never attended any events related to the murders of Kara or Jessica. The next hearing date for this latest delay is set for March 4th, 2021. Sounds like they're on a fishing expedition here. They're just really looking for something that's going to stick. They're like, wait, there's got to be some kind of conflict of interest with the judge. And this poor judge is like, what are you even talking about? Like, you don't have anything to back up these allegations. They're completely unfounded. And, you know, it's a little bit ridiculous. I like how the letter was anonymous and they have no other evidence to back up this letter. Like, how do we know that someone on the defense didn't just like write up a letter and say, like, this is crazy. That's all they have to say is an anonymous letter and they're trying to get a new judge for what reason. And to get a judge thrown off a case when a judge doesn't believe that there's grounds to do so is a really, really difficult thing to do because no other judge wants 
to throw a judge off of a case. There's this kind of mutual respect between judges. So it's never done unless there's an act real reason. Oftentimes it should be done and it's not done. So the fact that they thought that they could get away with this, that there's connections here, but you've got, this is completely baseless. You've got nothing to back it up and substantiate these anonymous claims. You thought that this would somehow get the judge removed. Like it's, it's not even a good strategy. It just makes them look bad. Kyler Yust's current charges include two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of abandoning a corpse in connection with the murders of Kara Kopetsky and Jessica Runyons. His trial is scheduled to begin on April 5, 2021 in Cass County, Missouri. However, the jurors will be selected from a different county because of the media attention regarding the case. Wow, that is so soon. If you think about it, like, that's crazy. We're just looking to just over basically a month away from now, and... Hopefully the trial will commence and it won't get pushed back any further. And I really hope that these parents who so much deserve justice, Jim and Rhonda, that they are going to see not only the resolution in that they've got Kara's body now, that they're going to see justice. Like there was justice in the Jessica Runyon's case and that he, you know, pled guilty. I really hope that the same happens with Kara's case when they move forward. I mean, it seems like the defense is trying every trick in the book and that's what good defense lawyers do. So, I mean, I guess try, try whatever you can, but at the end of the day, it seems like there is potentially irrefutable evidence. And I think that this alibi, we're going to see it really fall away because we've got a completely different direction before it was defending Kyler. And now the narrative is switched. If the prosecution's going against him, I don't think the police are going to go up there and be like, yeah, dude had an alibi. I think that they're going to go, well, he told us this and, you know, we took his word for it. We didn't substantiate or corroborate this alibi. And so that's on us because if they get up there and be like, he has a rock solid alibi. Well, that's not going to look good. And it's going to look like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. They need to get on the same page. I am definitely interested to see how this trial goes. I'm going to be following it very closely and I probably will post an update assuming that they actually proceed with the trial. So make sure that you go to Crime and Crime again and subscribe. And I want to thank Chelsea for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. It was super fun. I had a good time recording this and I'm glad we could again bring light to Kara's story. Side note, I am so used to listening to your podcast that I keep hearing your voice and I'm like, oh my God, it's actually me this time. Like I'm sitting here recording. (laughs) (laughs) Is it weird? It is. I'm so used to like hearing it in my ear and then I'm like, oh wait, I have to talk. (laughs) wait I've got to say something it's so funny because like I remember before I first started doing them with other people when I used to do them solo like way back and when I first I was so nervous when I would first bring on guests and like for one I was like totally awful with editing so every time I'd screw up it'd be like in abject terror now I know what I'm doing a little bit more so it's a little bit easier but it was definitely a strange transition going from doing it solo to you know doing it along with other people so is this the first time that you've done done one like this? Yes. This is my, since starting my podcast in August of 2020, this is my first time recording an episode with another person, even for my own podcast. I haven't had any guests on. So this is my first time doing like a collaboration. Oh, that's so exciting. Okay. Chelsea, can you tell my listeners where to find you on social media? Yeah, of course. So I am on Twitter at crime again pod, and I'm also on Facebook crime and crime again podcast. Uh, We have a discussion group, Crime and Crime Again podcast discussion on Facebook. I have an Instagram at Crime Again podcast, and I am now on TikTok at Crime Again podcast. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. While you're at it, do the same for Crime and Crime Again. Chelsea has lots of great content for you to enjoy. So if you want to support the show, you can make a one-time PayPal donation to riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Buy Me a Coffee at all one word, riddle me that pod. If you want to reach out and with some comments or case suggestions or feedback, whatever it is, just to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. And I'm super active on Twitter. My handle is at podcast riddle, or you can email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything.